Welcome to Homestead Story. We're Peter and Kristen. Join us as we share a new but old kind of family life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Homestead Story. We hope that you and your family are having a joyful Christmas season. Merry Christmas. It's been pretty slow around here. Everything is pretty much going dormant, and the ground is starting to freeze, and it's getting cold. And I am realizing that there is something so relaxing and mesmerizing about sitting by a fire. Yeah, we have a wood-burning stove here with a nice glass front on it, so we have been building fires and hanging out in front of the fire. Yeah, we'll have a drink at night and just chat, and honestly, it's having the same effect on me as sitting at the beach. Yeah, we our previous house was forced air heating, so is this house, and so we're used to just, just this dry air heat that doesn't really ever seem to warm you up, and then you sit in front of the fire, and it's radiant heat, and radiant heat is so nice. Yeah, Pete and the boys, they go camping a lot, and so I hear a lot of stories about them sitting by a campfire, and now I'm like, I totally get it. It is just so relaxing, and I think it's, you know, you feel the warmth of the fire, and then you see it just moving. It kind of like puts you in a little trance or something. It's so relaxing, and then um, the crackling and the popping, the sounds and the smell, it's yeah. just so it's so relaxing. And then for you know, our oldest is seven years old. So for the last seven years, we've been going through winter, and I feel like there's just so much time inside, and it starts to drive me crazy. Yeah, because we've been taking care of babies for seven years, <laughs> and um, a wood stove has now become this opportunity that I get to go outside and chop wood. Yeah, the winter. it's so cute seeing our seven-year-old chopping yeah. wood with dad. <laughs> I've been teaching oh, him how to chop so wood. Cute. He's so fired up. And about it's a good it. workout. We were talking to a friend who goes to. The, we're not gym people, and we have a friend, and he was talking about going to the gym, and he was talking about some of the exercises that they do at the gym, and we're like, "That's chopping wood." You're yeah. doing, and you're getting you're getting something in return for yeah. your exercise. Absolutely, it's really fun, and it's so cute to see the boys going outside collecting firewood and stuff. Yeah. Um, and when a tree falls down, it's kind of exciting because you get free firewood. Yeah, we have a bunch of we have some woods on our property, so we we get that supply of firewood too, just just from trees when they're ready to go. Yeah, I never knew how much just life and activity would a fire would bring to your family. Yeah, it's really cool. There's so much new stuff that we're learning out here. So our theory about winter is that. Um, you you rest during winter like you in order to have enough energy to get through spring summer and fall we're going to really try and rest through the winter yes it's a theory because i'm i have to convince myself to do that yeah we're suffering this is really hard for us (laughs) so we we work so hard spring summer and fall and then to all of a sudden have nothing to do we're kind of going crazy but we know that in the summer we'll say oh i can't wait till we can sit by a fire and watch movies and and stuff but this is really hard for us yeah and i think I think it's part of entering into what a homestead is, is you become more seasonal. So so usually, I mean, we just live the same life, really, in, in the suburbs. You just go from activities to activities and stuff. And so we really want to enter into a winter season here. We got a bunch of games for Christmas for the boys who are playing I'm learning battleship. Che- I'm learning chess, and yeah. we play a lot of battleship. <laughs> yeah. Catholic mom. I'm like playing against my son and my son is he beats me at everything so I really <laughs> want to win like for his for his well-being I want him to learn how to lose he he went he beats me at everything and so I'm like literally praying to St. Anthony when I'm playing Battleship yeah <laughs> Pete does not think that's really no I weird. think that's a little weird 
<laughs> but I won. I'm trying to Thank you, St. Anthony. It's, it's not St. Anthony and mommy verse him. That's not fair. Well, I'm teaching him about the intercession of the saints. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, I won. And that's... <laughs> I have to beat that kid. I mean, beats me at everything. So... Yeah. Checkers. I try so hard. <laughs> yeah, we upped it to chess because he was continually beating me at checkers. Yeah. So anyway, we're trying to we're trying to slow down. We're trying to play games, build relationships, have more people over. Just just um, focus on relationships now. Focus on rest and know that we're going to be working really hard in the warm months. We say that although you were building a fence yesterday. Yeah. So well, it's been nice. Oh. <laughs> So we're going to rest in we're trying. January, February. January, February, we'll get better at it. <laughs> we're going crazy. Anyway, so today, Pete, how would you describe today's episode? We want to talk about the buzzwords of natural living. Yeah, the things that you hear a lot. And at this point, you probably hear them so much. And maybe you don't even really know what they mean, but you're too embarrassed to ask at this point. Unless <laughs> so. you've been living under a rock, you've heard probably almost all of them. Yeah, so we're going to kind of go over what they are and why they're important to us. And um, I want to start with a little story. It's I remember back at our old house, uh, I used to go to the playground all the time or the pool, and there was this other mom there that was a lot like me. She had kids my kid's age. We were both kind of always pregnant, and we were both very social and obviously needing to get out of the house because we'd see each other like two days a week at these at the playground. And we were both really extroverted, and somehow we would just, you know, on the swings, we'd end up chatting and... I remember one time I was talking to her and we were both pregnant and I was like, I really want to have a natural labor this time. And she was like, she lit up and she said, oh, are you crunchy? <laughs> and I was like, nope, I don't know what that means, yeah, but I'm not that. first time I heard that, that word, I was like, that is the funniest word. And she was like, oh, I am, I am totally crunchy granola. I love all that stuff. And I was just like, no, no. Not crunchy. And and then we were talking another time and she was talking about her husband having all these food allergies and how all these things that their family can't eat. And I probably sounded really rude. I mean, she didn't act like I was rude. She was acted very friendly, but looking back, I I probably sounded just really just rude. I said, you know, how does why does everybody have all these allergies all of a sudden? Yeah, right. Like insinuating that it they're just making them. Yeah. Like anyone, yeah. People would make up an allergy and you know, again, she, she didn't get offended. She just lit up and she said, Oh, it's all the GMOs and the pesticides. And we're just, we're not raising food in a way that's sustainable. And I remember just looking at her and being like, I don't know (laughs) one word that you're talking about. Okay. Let's change the subject. (laughs) And it's funny because I'm not, I don't see her anymore. We just only really ran into each other at the playground and I think it'd be so funny to talk now because we probably have so much more in common. So anyway, if you find yourself in that kind of situation, we're going to talk about these words. Or maybe you're really into natural living, but you really haven't thought about these things. Or maybe this is an episode you can share with someone else. Or So we just hope that you stick around while we kind of go back to the basics here. Absolutely. So the first word we're going to talk about is sustainable. And what does that mean to be sustainable? Yeah, and sustainability is... It's really big, even for Catholics right now, because I'm going to keep kind of talking about this. The Pope wrote an encyclical to the world, and he talks a lot about sustainability in his encyclical. This is from Laudate Si. We are terrible at Latin, (laughs) so I'm just... (laughs) Did you do that on purpose? Laudate Laudate Si. Okay, we're just, (laughs) just... Praise be to you. Care for our common home. That's the English version. We're just not good at Latin. Um, so he says, let 
Let ours be a time remembered for an awakening of a new reverence for life, the firm resolve to achieve sustainability, the quickening of the struggle for justice and peace, and a joyful celebration of life. So he's calling for us to to have a firm resolve to achieve sustainability. So we should know what that means. So we are going to talk about that. Right. So sustainable means an activity that can be done indefinitely. So if a certain activity is degrading the environment or degrading the resources that you have, then it at some point it will have to stop and it therefore it's not sustainable. So if you think about like a family farm that was in the family for generations and great granddaddy passed it down to granddad to your dad to you and you want to preserve it for your grandkids, then obviously you want to to farm in a way that's sustainable so that by the time it gets to your grandkids, they don't say, oh, well, you know, the farm is destroyed, so we can't farm anymore. Yeah. Pope Francis talks a lot about caring for future generations. And um, he says the common good extends to, to future generations. We have to be, we receive this gift of the environment. We can't just say, we can't just say, oh, sorry, we ruined it for you. <laughs> we have to be thinking about, about them. Right. So there's some really amazing ways to do row cropping. When you think of row cropping um, of annuals, like I've heard uh, someone called Dr. Elaine Ingram talk about ways to sustainably do row crops. And, and there's ways that are more sustainable. But what happens sometimes with row cropping is you can have massive acreages of some crop like corn or soy and you're tilling up the ground every year, and that's exposing soil to the uh, to the air, where carbon and nitrogen will escape into the atmosphere. And then um, one of the big things that happens is nature hates bare soil. You you won't find bare soil anywhere except maybe in a desert. And you so. If we notice this on our property, if there's anywhere with bare soil, just weeds will grow on top of it because right. nature wants to protect bare soil. Right. So if we're tilling it up every year and then rains come, the rains can have a whole lot of the soil runoff. And um, over time, that topsoil is going to become more degraded and more degraded. And there's you know some places that do this. And given depending on how good the topsoil is to start with, after 20, 30, 50, 100 years that soil is becomes marginal. It's no longer good for growing things. So that would be the definition of not sustainable. And can you describe, you said that there's some places where people will inherit a farm and it has no worms in it. And worms are so essential for healthy soil. Yeah, I've heard different farmers talk about properties that they've taken over and the soil has become totally degraded. It's no longer good for growing things and they have to go through some major efforts to regenerate that soil and and um and make it useful again yeah so that's one of the problems and then that leads into um, a large amount of pesticide use and herbicide use and chemical fertilizers that can be used in in just significant quantities onto farms and um we've talked about that you know getting into the food that we eat but it also contributes to runoff and if you look at, um, there's an area where the Mississippi enters into the Gulf and they have what's called a dead zone down there where you won't find any fish. The dead zone in 2015 was the size of Connecticut and Rhode Island together. Mm. So a ton of runoff from all kinds of operations, farms, uh, maybe other things, factories. I'm not sure where it all comes from, but it's destroying this massive area at the bottom of the Mississippi River. Yeah, and Pope Francis writes a chapter 
about water, and it's really unacceptable for us to destroy water because, again, it's, it's not caring for the future generations. He just writes about the problems with water, saying that our water sources are threatened by certain mining, farming, and industrial activities and detergents and chemical products that we pour into our rivers and lakes and our seas. So all these chemicals are getting washed into our waterways. Right. Even at our house here, we're on well water, and we had to have a well test done here to make sure that the well you know, didn't have too high of nitrates in it or other, you know, poisons. And that's true in a lot of places around the country. I mean, we have like messed up the environment through different practices enough that that the water is no longer drinkable. Yeah. And this is actually kind of um, interesting. So I talked last episode about my kids. I let them pick out whatever books they want from the library and they come home with some interesting finds. And a little while ago, they came home with this book that said, frog deformities and it had a deformed frog on the cover so these are the kind of books that my boys like to bring home head lice and frog deformities so we sat down together to read this book about frog deformities and it was actually really interesting because they were kind of making this point that there's this increased rise of deformed frogs that they're finding and this has a lot of problems because the frogs since they're deformed they can't get away from predators so they're getting eaten more easily and they can't hunt the bugs as easily so they were seeing a a rise in the kind of insects that they would typically eat like mosquitoes and such and again I don't I don't know how long this research takes to to figure out why but one of their guesses in this in this book that I read was that these tadpoles are being exposed to lots of different chemicals and pesticides and it's causing them to grow deformities. And That's so funny. I remember reading stuff like that as a little kid and it would stress me out so much. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're like, grown up, stop doing this, you know, yeah. <laughs> stop destroying the rainforest. Yeah. I and I think too. like, yeah, there's, it's hard to know the exact <laughs> ramifications of our actions when we start taking them in large scale. But to me, it just seems really like, if we're pouring poison of different kinds, even if we think it's a safer poison over our land, we should really be trying to limit that and maybe figure out ways to do it. Yeah, yeah, and differently. Pope, and um, I keep quoting Pope Francis. I think his encyclical. It's so important that we understand what he's saying to us. But he talks about every creature. It is so selfish to just say like we're gonna. You know, we don't care what happens to this creature. That that creature was made for God's pleasure, and it's part of His plan for creation. And to say like, well, we don't really care about the frogs. I mean, that's just not. It's just so selfish. And we need to be thinking about these for our for the generations to come, that they can enjoy them as well. Right. And then if we're buying products, so if there's a certain amount of of resource, whatever it might be, pick something like tungsten in the world, and we're mining that and sticking it into the Wait, stuff what is that we tungsten? use. Tungsten. It's just... Uh, <laughs> I have never heard that word. I was talking to my uncle. They put it in incandescent light bulbs, okay, I, among probably many other things. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know much about tungsten. <laughs> All I'm saying, this is an example, is that if we're using a resource like that and then throwing it into landfills, at some point you you will run out of that resource. It's not sustainable. And I here's the point. is I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but I am a consumer. And what I want to take on is a greater responsibility to know when am I taking part in an activity that's not sustainable. Yeah. And so it's a little bit overwhelming right now as I'm trying to learn all of this, but I've taken on uh, part of this responsibility to know that if I'm going to be a consumer, if I'm going to be a user, then I also want to make sure that I'm using good systems and also trying to learn how can I contribute um, to a more sustainable future for all of us. Yeah. So if we're doing things like 
you know, dead zones in the Mississippi and poison drinking water and topsoil that's degrading, then these are pretty massive issues that are degrading our environment for future generations. So we might have a really cheap, you know, bag of chips at the store, but an easy way to think about that is we've just passed some of that cost on to future generations. Yeah, right, exactly. All right, so that's sustainable. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about another word that you may not have heard yet, but I think it's going to become more and more popular, and that is permaculture. So I just read an article in the Baltimore Sun about a Catholic family, and we actually had the privilege of meeting them, running into them at the fair recently. But there's a Catholic family near us, and they are starting a a family permaculture farm. On It's 100 acres, isn't it? Yeah. And this is a real farm. They're going to be selling their products, which is really cool, and they're using the permaculture practices. So I think it's going to become more and more in the light, so you will know what permaculture is when people talk about it. Yeah, you may not have heard that word before. It's something I've gotten really excited about. But in 1978, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren coined this term permaculture, and it's a set of design concepts that mimic nature. So when we see patterns in nature and we see how nature does things, we're going to set up our systems to mimic that so that uh, all of the functions that nature seems to be able to do quite well for itself, we can have that be a part of the agricultural practices that we're doing. Yeah. And an easy way to remember, I think when I think permaculture, I think permanent agriculture. I yeah, think, is that one really, of the meanings that they're right, going yeah, for? Yeah. I think that's one of the things they're going for is this is a permanent way of doing agriculture. So Bill Mollison wrote this book called the Permaculture Design Manual, and he, that was built on some people that came before him. A lot of people have taken it and gone further with it, but permaculture is this absolute encyclopedia of everything from the philosophical down to the very practical of how to grow regenerative systems of agriculture. So it's anywhere from Africa to Australia to Maryland. Um, there's ways of retaining water and bringing diversity while keeping the system productive. Yeah, I, I've seen this just starting to work on our own little permaculture. So we have one area of our farm that we use for a kind of a permaculture orchard. We've got fruit trees and our squashes, annuals and perennials mixed in together. And we, we put all, of our, all the plants in in a way that would retain water. So we really did not have to water it at all. Even through the 100 degree weather in the summer, we weren't out there with a hose watering it. It retained its own water. Yeah. we've In Maryland for July and August, things get really hot here and they can get really dry. And the last thing I want to be doing as a part of this is having to water my crops. Yeah. And there's ways of doing it from the small scale all the way up to the large scale. We're pretty small here. We're going to have a 1.7 acre food forest. It's still pretty big, but there's ways all the way up to the hundreds acres of of keeping the water in the ground. The, the soil is the best place to store water. And so we want maximum water retention within our soil. And permaculture has a ton of ways of solving that. Yeah. And I just love the diver- I'm learning so much about just the diversity of plants for the mm-hmm. wildlife. So I'm planting a lot of things to attract the beneficial birds and the butterflies and things like that. And I don't mind putting in a whole tree just for one, one species of bird or, you know, for the birds, like, Hey birds, you can eat all this. This is for you. Yeah. We have, um, at our old house, we had really nothing but European starlings. They're like this invasive species from Europe and they live in people's gutters. So they do really well in 
you know, the city and suburbia. Yeah, we didn't see, I didn't really know anything about native birds because I really never saw them. So I put up bird feeders and we only got some starlings and things like that. And one issue we had at our old house was we had a ton of mosquitoes. So if I walked out to my car, I could have 10 mosquito bites. And back then we didn't know any better. We would spray our yard because the mosquitoes were so bad. And we came out here and there's just different kinds of birds everywhere from, and beautiful birds like the finches and the cardinals and the, the nuthatches. I mean, I could go on and on the woodpeckers. There's just so many birds and we haven't had a lot of mosquito problem at all. We haven't sprayed or anything. We, we really don't have mosquito problems here and we have bats and frogs and all kinds of things. And they really help keep, um, a balance. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the arguments that I hear people make for the industrial agriculture system is that we have 7 billion people in this world and we have to feed them. And this is the only way to do it. And as an engineer, anytime I hear someone say, this is the only way to solve a problem, it I just get so annoyed. Like any complex problem in the world has multiple solutions. Mm-hmm. And some of them are way more elegant than others. And I think that it doesn't matter if the current system feeds the world or not. If it's not sustainable, then we can't do it forever and we have to figure out alternatives. So there are some really special alternatives that people are doing that are producing just as many calories per acre as corn and are providing a place for the wildlife and they're filtering the water and making it better instead of, instead of degenerating it and, and, um, yeah, human beings can use their creativity and their intellect to help work with nature and to figure out new ways to to grow food. Right. So there's a lot more to it than that. We're going to be growing. Oh, can you talk about, sorry, can you talk about the three ethics of permaculture? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is really interesting. Every decision you would make in per- permaculture is supposed to be led by these three ethics. And so they are care for people, care for the earth, and a return of surplus. So... Catholicism, first off, has so much in common in this. As as a Catholic people, we want every decision that we make and every action that we take to be governed by a set of ethics and morals and teachings. So I think the first two kind of speak for themselves, care for people and care for the earth. We want everything we do to be doing those. The third one, a return of surplus, is a little bit harder to understand. Um, But if In a lot of human history, our activities have been to take all of the surplus out of a system for our own use, our own greed maybe, then instead we want to take the surplus out of a system and return it to the system and use it to help other people. I think human beings have this fascinating desire to care for the needy and to care for people who are less well off than us. And I have that in me a lot, you know, and I would totally love to be able to have surplus from our system that we can give directly to the poor. Yeah, Pete, I love it because you want to put in this huge forest garden, almost two acres, and our family could never eat that. And you just said, I can't wait till I can take the boys and we can go down and give this to people in need. Yeah, absolutely. So our system would be able to continue to reproduce in a regenerative way every year. We're building topsoil here. It's getting better. We're producing more food every year. And then we're able to take surplus and give it to those who don't have any. Yeah. And also uh, we grew a ton of squashes this year. We're still eating our squashes and we could feed our chickens with a lot of that surplus. And we have no problem just planting, like I said before, planting trees just to help um, and some native wildlife. So yeah, it's giving the surplus 
back to creation, back to human beings. Absolutely. So that's brief introduction of permaculture. Yes. Next on our list is local. What does it mean to eat local? Yeah, you see those signs all the like now they're becoming bigger. You're seeing them at grocery stores. Yeah, you're starting to see them sections. in some of the yeah some of the grocery stores even are trying to sell local, which is neat. But I think one of the reasons that that's really important is that industrial agriculture systems are are set up to become more and more efficient, and what that means a lot of times is that you're buying equipment the size of houses, which might mean going into a lot of debt. And there might be a lot of farmers who just don't even want to do that. But it's the effect that it's having across our country is more and more farmers are going out of business. Yeah, It's concentrating more and more of the land and the money into a smaller and smaller group of people's hands. Mm-hmm. And we actually think that local farmers are really important and we want them. Yeah. We don't want them to go out of business. We yeah. think that they produce a valuable product. I think it's a really, really dignified way of living where yes. you get to be out on your own land producing your own product. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's a lot of people out there that want that lifestyle. They want to live that way. And so we want to support them. Yeah, to see them go out of business to me is heartbreaking. And the far- the local farmers that we have met are just the friendliest hardworking people. Uh, we had actually a funny story recently. So I was having some friends over for a little friend's Thanksgiving and Pete and I had a miscommunication and they were coming over the next day and without going into details, we did not have a turkey <laughs> and I didn't want to go. Without going into details, that means I missed something. <laughs> That's Kristen's way of saying like, <laughs> I forgot. Anyway, we didn't have, he, he had a turkey, but for the wrong time. So we ended up with two turkeys, but Anyway, we didn't have a turkey for the dinner the next day, and I didn't want to go to the grocery store and get a frozen turkey that I couldn't thaw in time. So I just started calling all around our area, our neighborhood. We have a couple local farmers in our neighborhood. So I started calling them, and I talked to one farm, and they were just so great. You know, I told them, I'm having people over tomorrow. Do you have any fresh turkeys? And they were like, we can get you one. We can probably have it ready by 9 o'clock tonight, or you can pick it up tomorrow morning. And they were just, they cared about my party. They cared about my business. It was just human contact. And and then Pete went with our son the next day to pick it up. It was really fun. We went there, and we, we got our turkey from him, and the worker was like, hey, you want to come see the rabbits? So they took us into the rabbit house, and my three-year-old loved that, got to see the rabbits. It was just a really nice experience, and it's Nice because they like to show their farm off and not every farmer is going to be doing everything perfectly, but you know, when, when they want you to see the farm that they're doing a really good job because they're not hiding anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's such a great experience for the kids. And too. we're just, like, humans are a communal species. We're meant yeah. to have community. And I really enjoy this idea that really for some of the first times in my life, I'm getting to know the people who are working to produce the food that we're eating. I yeah. think that's really special and important. And and my money gets to stay within the community. They care about our community because it's the same street that I live on. There's a lot of really good stuff happening. Yeah, there. and I'm thankful that I get to drive by these beautiful farms. And I definitely do not want to see them go out of business. So right. you know, every right. time we support them, we're helping to keep the farms in business. And sometimes it's more expensive, but I think they're charging a fair price. They're charging yeah. what it costs them. And... A lot of times we're not paying a fair price in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Some of that's subsidized by the government. And um, sometimes, like we're talking about, there's unseen costs that we're passing on to future generations. So I want to be willing to pay a fair price for my food if that means keeping the local farmer in business. Yeah, definitely. So that's where you're seeing locals. So I guess our next one is 
GMOs. Oh my goodness. Political subject yeah. beware. Yeah. Right. GMOs. So genetically <laughs> modified organism. And that means in a laboratory. That's not a bee pollinating a flower. It's modified in a laboratory. And after that, it can mean a ton of different stuff. And I am no expert on GMOs. I'm just going to talk about some of the basics that yeah, I we do are, know. We are not experts. We are learning and we are just sharing as we learn. Right. But what's really interesting <laughs> I worry is, that people, like an expert, will listen to this and just be like, oh my gosh. Yeah, no. <laughs> we're, we're keeping it basic. But I think what's neat about my perspective and our perspective is that when I heard about GMOs, I got really nervous and it made me feel strange. And I think that's probably most people's reaction. Mm -hmm. Like they don't label a food when it has a GMO in it. And the reason the government doesn't want GMO labeling is because they know your average person feels really uncomfortable about this subject and probably wouldn't buy that food. Yeah. And it's okay to listen to your gut. (laughs) Right. If something makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. So anyway, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, it can mean many different things, some smaller modifications. Um, to a species genome, a lot of times what it means is is literally taking DNA from a completely different species and putting it into that species. So you'd be taking uh, DNA out of a bacteria and putting it into a soybean plant. And you're doing that to get a specific trait, like you want the soybean to be resistant to glyphosate. Okay, lay people's terms. (laughs) So glyphosate is an herbicide that you would spray on the soybean so that it kills all the weeds, and you've genetically modified the soy so that it doesn't kill the soybean. So it can withstand these chemicals that kill weeds. Right, or you modify corn so that it produces, uh, again, you take DNA out of a bacteria, bacteria and modify corn so that it's producing its own pesticide. It's producing Bt within the corn plant itself. Mm -hmm. Or... You modify an apple so that it doesn't get brown when you cut it. They've created the Arctic apple, which is, you know, you don't want your apple to get brown when you slice it, which I guess is a big deal to somebody. And they don't want to put vitamin C. They don't want to put lemon juice on it, which would do the same thing. So we genetically modify the apple. Lots of different reasons. And it's in, you know, ever increasing numbers that we're doing this. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt so hesitant about this, and I thought for a long time, why do I feel hesitant about this? And I think that, you know, I've heard people talk about GMOs and just say some really scathing things about them, and, and I, you know, I probably agree with some of that. Um, but in general, I feel like human beings have this, if I look throughout history, I see human beings, we constantly think we know what we're doing, and then we find out a long time later that we don't. Yeah. And somehow in 2016, we're modern humans and we think we know what we're doing. And if you go to the website of one of these companies that's doing this and you look at a crop, you, you know, they, they'll say, well, there's these four parts of the genome and we know them well and we've modified them. We know exactly what the consequences are. And, and I feel like we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Like genetics is incredibly complex. There's all kinds of interdependent relationships going on and and, and a small amount of research, which is really what it is, a tiny amount of research is not going to indicate if there's some kind of systemic problem here. It could take, really, it could take generations to know if there's right. an effect or not. And, and then once you put a uh, genetically modified product out into the wild, it starts pollinating all kinds of other yeah. uh, uh, natural species and you're not going to get it back. You, yeah. can't, you can't undo that. It seems to me like something we should have reverence about. If you're going to really mess with nature... That's you know been 
operating a certain way for so many years. It's you should have you should be sober about it. So I was thinking about this, and I was like, are we really putting? other species DNA into our crops? Like, is that really a thing? And uh, I found out that like the majority of the countries in the European Union have banned cultivation of new GMOs. And Russia is really, really hesitant against it and has banned even the import of genetically modified products into their country. And so I feel like a lot of the world feels the way that your average person in America feels too. And so... Yeah, um, it kind of reminds me of the lead paint issue that we talked about in the first episode. So a lot of other countries banned it and we're putting it all over our houses. And we find out later that it's having an effect on children, especially. Right. And I think my, what I want to see happen is for us as humans to figure out ways that we can be spraying our crops with less herbicide, not figuring out how can we make a a plant that just, uh, you know, resists the herbicide. How can we not use herbicide should be the real question (laughs) that we're going for. Yeah, so that's that's GMOs in our opinion, our thoughts on GMOs. So let's go on to more things that you'll see in the grocery store, and one of that is your eggs. So, well, I am your basic consumer. I think I walk through the grocery store and my eye just kind of scans and I see certain labels jump out at me, like all natural and pure and, you know, free range and cage free. And when you really grab, when you take it off the the shelf and you look at it, it says all natural. And then you read the ingredients and you're like, I don't know about this. Yeah. There's very few (laughs) foods in the store that aren't trying to claim, claim that anymore. You know, it's kind of like how many, how many of these are actually doing better practices and how many of them are trying to trick me? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely become that person in the grocery store that's reading labels. Um, I think that the food industry is catching on to this growing trend of clean eating. So, you know, they're putting that on their advertising. So we're going to talk about just focus on eggs for right now. So we haven't had to buy store-bought eggs in a long time because our chickens lay a lot of eggs, but I did buy them to do a little experiment with the boys. So we cracked our eggs and compared it with the store-bought eggs. And our eggs, I mean, the yolks are almost a neon orange. They're just so dark and bright orange. And then the store-bought eggs were really just a pale, pale yellow, the yolk. Really bland. Oh, the, the difference was remarkable. Yeah, it was a really amazing. And it's because of what's going into our chickens. I mean, they're out on pasture. They're eating so many bugs and greens, and they're getting so many vitamins and minerals and omega-3s and things like that. And you can see it in the color. Yeah, and we've had times where, like, if it snows, the chickens don't want to get out. They, they hate snow, so they just stay in the coop all day. And you notice if that happens for a few days in a row, the eggs do start to fade a little bit. Yeah. They don't look as healthy. Yeah, totally. It's You can definitely tell the difference from what the chickens are eating. So when you go to the egg aisle in the grocery store, you might see things like um, cage-free and free-range and vegetarian-fed. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. So cage-free basically means that they're not in cages, but you might have this image in your head that they're free from the cages, but they're really in those giant hen houses that you see, you know, yeah, cage free in the documentaries. <laughs> that's just like a very step up, small step up. From yeah. Awful. Yeah. So that's, you know, cage free, free range is a really tricky one because when I hear free range, I think free and ranging and yeah, that's what everybody that's thinks what when free they hear range, that word. Free, you're free. But what that actually means, if you want to claim free range, you just have to have a little area in that big hen house where they have access to get outside. A lot of them never can. I mean, there's so many chickens in there. A lot of them can't get outside. And they don't, they don't have any requirements for 
how long they have to be outside or they're they're typically not out on pasture. They're kind of in a small area. There's no requirements for how large the area is that they're outside. So typically when I think free range, I think, okay, some of the chickens are getting outside into a small area. Um, they're not they're not getting the bugs and the greens from the pasture. Which is interesting because that's that's a word where it's clearly at this point they're trying to trick you. I mean, free range, any person who has any understanding of the English language would think yeah, that's free. a chicken out free doing what it wants, at yeah. least having a large area to be in. And yeah. And it maybe, mean that maybe at all. that's happening somewhere, but that's not what you have to do to claim free range. So the best eggs that you can get are pasture-raised eggs, and I haven't, I have yet to see that in a grocery store or where we are. Um, pasture-raised really means that you're going to a farm and you're talking to the farmer and you're seeing the chickens out on pasture, and the farmer says, "Yeah, they're raised on pasture." Right. Well, a lot of these these. Um, these words have been taken over by the government agencies to regulate. And I just don't know that the government's ever really going to be capable of doing that in, in a good way without watering down what the meaning is. And I've seen that there are some private organizations that are starting to come up with their own certifications, like the non-GMO project is a good example. And I think that I really hope that that will work because I think there's farmers out there that really want to distinguish their product. They're doing really good things. They want to be able to distinguish it for the public and they should have a mechanism to do that. But as long as the certifications don't really mean much, then I, you know, I don't know that it's really helping them. Yeah, right. So uh, another thing that you'll see on the chicken box is vegetarian fed. And that's, that's really funny. Yeah, that sounds really healthy. Like vegetarian fed, great. plate of vegetables or something. Yeah, except your chicken is an omnivore. So. Yeah. yeah, a chicken is not a vegetarian. So that typically just means they're getting grain. Like they've all, every, they're all, all the chickens are getting right. grain. Yeah. Um, but chickens want to be out on pasture. They want to be eating the, the bugs and the fly larvae and the worms and things like that. So they really want to be eating all those things. Yeah, probably the best chance you have at getting really good eggs or chicken is, again, just your local farmer is probably going to be doing a decent job. Yeah, or consider raising chickens yourself. Even better. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So um, the other thing we want to talk about that you'll see is grass-fed. Right, So that's with, grass-fed. with beef, and you'll see signs that say grass-fed. So well, why grass-fed? Because when I before when I used to buy meat, I didn't really... People started to talk about grass-fed, and my thought was kind of like, well, it's going to die. I'm going to eat it anyway. Like, why do I care what it's eating? Right. I didn't really understand. So why grass fed? Well, the primary reason is because cows eat grass. That's like, what, that's yeah. naturally what they do. And they do eat, eat some grain. I mean, anytime they eat the seed head off of grass, that's grain and they're eating it. And I think it it is natural for cows to have some grain. But in general, if it's grass fed, that means it didn't go to a CAFO. So it's been out on pasture its whole life, which is a really, really, that's the biggest thing in my mind that distinguishes the beef right now is it's not coming from a concentrated animal feeding operation, which is just where they pack loads and loads of cows into a small area and they're raised in mud and poop. And, and we talked about runoff earlier. There's, there's manure bogs next to some of these that some of them drain. I've seen pictures of them draining right into the Mississippi river, mm-hmm. having runoff into the Mississippi river. So there's some real difficulties there and grass fed means you're going to get a cow that was out on pasture. Cows 
uh, when they're being managed properly on pasture, they're building topsoil. It's a regenerative form of agriculture. It's a really, really good thing. I've seen some studies that are showing that grass-fed beef is a whole lot better for you. It has a lot more of the good kinds of of fats and stuff in it. And um, it has a lot less fat. So a cow that's been finished on grain or raised on grain is going to be just a very fat cow. That's how you get your marbleized steaks is that you can get a steak and throw it on a super hot grill and it still tastes okay um, because it has so much fat in it. And grass-fed beef, you're going to have to cook differently. You have to cook it low and slow. But um, cattle are really amazing. They are taking grass, which is really tough. It's cellulose. Like we can't digest it in our Mm -hmm. stomachs. They're eating massive quantities of it. And it's by fermentation, breaking down in their stomach and turning into either milk or beef. So this product that's high in sugar and protein and carbohydrates and has lots of minerals in it, it's just very clean food. Mm -hmm. The cow is digesting it and turning it into potentially really clean food for us. So since we're on the topic of what cows should eat, Pete, could you just talk a little bit about mad cow disease? Yeah, you talk about bad moments in, in industrialized food was... They, they wanted to figure out how can we feed less grain to the cows. So the idea was to use all of the parts of the cow that weren't turned into meat for sale, recycle those and feed them back to the cow, which was uh, not a great idea. And it turned into a very bad idea when the cows started getting mad cow disease and their, their brains went crazy because they were wow. being fed cow. Yeah. So if you're going to really mess with the way that an animal is intended to be raised and the food that the animal is intended to eat, there could be consequences that you're not prepared for, like mad cow disease. Right. And we don't know that we want to run into every consequence just by then seeing the data years later when yeah. it was causing problems. If if we stick to how cows have been raised for thousands of years, we know that we're doing a safe, healthy thing. Yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of other topics that we could cover, but we are way past our time limit. So we're going to end it here. And we hope that you have a wonderful Christmas season and that you'll join us next time. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.